Okay, we are live. So, nightly sponsors, Elchanan Hanas for the Hatzlacha of Elchanan ben Ruth Limor, and for the Rafua Shalema of Menachem Mendel ben Sarah Batya and Devorah Fega Bat Rezel. And I'd also like to uh, add on my own little simcha. My sister had her second grandson called Dober at the Bris. So I'd like to wish them a mouth of two. Okay. Um, just a little warning. This, uh, this is based on a Yutet Kislev Mimer, um, which is like the beginning of the Hasidic year. So usually these Mimerim are not easy. So we're going to jump into some deep stuff here. But my job is to take you through this without levitating. So we're going to do that. So let's start with man's search for meaning. Always begin with the uh, practical issue. What is the modern day practical issue for us? So Viktor Frankl was an Austrian, we'll back this up here, was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist as well as a Holocaust survivor. He was the founder of Logotherapy, which is a form of existential analysis. Frankl's best-selling book called Man's Search for Meaning chronicles his experiences as a concentration camp inmate, which led him to discover the importance of finding meaning in all forms of existence, even the most brutal ones, and thus a reason to continue living. Guys, uh, ever read that book? Man's, oh, beautiful book, beautiful, beautiful book. Have you read it? No, very good book. I'm not here to advertise uh, books, but that's a very good book. <laughs> Okay, so what I want to talk to you about is that thank God we don't have the situations that uh, he went through. He went through the Holocaust. He kept on uh, hoping to one day come out and reunite with his love, only to find out that uh, she passed away. Passed away, she was murdered. But anyway, we don't go through that. However, we go through something else, and I actually put in some links into the um, notes. So when you get it, please click on the link. Um, it's something called ACE. Anyone here familiar with ACEs? ACE is an acronym, Adverse Childhood Experiences. We're learning a lot about that today. Okay, so I have a link over here from an organization called SAMHSA, which stands for Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And another link to a simple click, a clear clip, it's in, it's in this one. It's the one that you're going to get in the mail. You get the emails? You don't get the emails. Oh. Your emails? Yeah. You have no idea what you're missing. We'll put you on our list. I know. I know what I get here. I can imagine what I'm listening. Well, we'll, we'll give you the list because these are important links. So what is ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences? Adverse childhood experiences, you'll, you'll see from the link, you know, YouTube always wants to keep them so keep you busy on their, on their site. So they always have on the side, you know, other links. And you, if you want to just do some research, it's unbelievable what we now know. Uh, number one, the brain is much more software than hardware than we ever thought. Number two, this notion that the brain is fully developed at a certain age and after that you can't trick, teach an old horse new tricks is absolutely smashed out of the universe. Um, the actual biology of the brain, we now know with tests and scans and stuff, 
uh, they've been testing on bamboos, uh, ba ba bamboos, <laughs> and they, baboons, sorry. <laughs> yes, well, and they've been doing a lot of tests on what stress does, um, what adverse childhood experiences do. So I want to just share with you, one of the issues is that when you watch these videos, you think, oh my God, I didn't have that. I didn't have, uh, you know, a father chasing my mother with a knife, and I didn't have, you know, beaten to a pulp, or, you know, whatever. Um, so you think, okay, that's not for me, not true. You'd be amazed on what the simple emotional neglect of a parent does to the biology of your brain. I'm not talking about your mood, so I'm talking about your biology of the brain. You'll actually see which areas of the brain lights up and the frontal cortex, which is what makes us human, is actually very low on people that went through adverse childhood experiences. Now, I would argue that I have not yet met a person who has not had adverse childhood experiences. Our parents, uh, you know, either of blessed memory or of may they live and be well, did the best they could, but you're talking about a post-Holocaust uh, world. You're talking about the post-Hitler, uh, Stalin, I mean, who, who didn't have dysfunctionality in their family? And the parents came here and they had to start from scratch. Of course, we're going to have adverse childhood experiences. And again, they actually, one of the videos you can actually see is they did a test of just having a baby sit in a chair and the mother, you know, having facial communication. And then they told the mother, go silent. Your facial expressions. I watched the video. Nothing was done. Everything was perfect. Nothing changed. The mother just went into a blank stare. You should have seen the baby become hysterical. Saw this video with my own eyes. And uh, then in Austria, there was a horrific study done by a guy called Harlow, where they took a bunch of infants from birth. They gave them all their needs, but absolutely no emotional caress or anything. Um, half the babies, unfortunately, didn't make it um, just a couple of months. And the rest, I mean, it's unbelievable what happened. So the biology of the brain, the health, we're all dealing with ACEs. So we're not dealing with the Holocaust concentration cramps, a total different world, thank God. And we should never have to deal with it again. And it's not that it's impossible, but we should, uh, God should have mercy on us and make it not happen. But with that being said, with ACEs, we still have to deal with Viktor Frankl's book. Because without a meaning to life, I mean, I would share with you that I don't think there's been in a generation prior to ours that has dealt with such an epidemic of depression. Very young age, very young age. I spoke to one person who at the age of five already announced to his mother that he's going to commit suicide and exactly how he's going to do it. How a five-year-old even has those thoughts. So what I would like to share is that none of us are saved from this. We need to find meaning to life or life becomes unbearable okay so what we're going to do over here is that this lecture is going to explore precisely the meaning of life and any form of suffering in life okay this lecture is based as i told you on a mimer delivered by the rebbe in 1965 on the 19th of kislev i will just tell you briefly yesterday was the 19th of kislev today is the 20th of kislev the Alter Rebbe, Rabshner Zam of Liadi, the founder of Chabad, 
was imprisoned on Sukkot for 53 days, which brings us right into yesterday. And what happened was that it happened after he wrote the book, Tanya, which has 53 chapters. Physically speaking, everything spiritual has to manifest itself physically. Physically, it manifested itself with someone snitching on him that he's a rebel against the Russian government, which is why he was taken in under the highest security and put in the most harsh prison. Why was he a rebel? Because one of his teachers moved to Israel, Rabbi Mendel Vitebsker, Rabbi Mendel Haradake, and he took upon himself to send money. Israel at the time was under Turkey, and there was the Russian-Turkey war. So they said that he's sending it to, to Turkeys. They didn't send it to Turks. He didn't say that they're sending it to uh, someone who's sitting there and studying with his uh, students. That's what it was physically. Spiritually, he actually told, he actually said after he was let out, that his teacher and his teacher's teacher, who already in the afterlife revealed himself to him, and told him that you're in prison right now because of, in heaven, they're accusing you of revealing too many secrets of the Torah. You had no right to reveal the secrets to the masses. And we're going to quote you a Rambam about these things. But nevertheless, he asked, should I stop? He said, no. They answered him, no, because the mere fact that you're about to be released is a, is a statement that in heaven your, your work is victorious and therefore not only you could continue, you must continue and you must even grow in it. So that's why that became the Roshan of Hasidus. Now, just uh, if you know the history of uh, the Rebbes, <laughs> many of our Rebbes had, uh, shall we call it, uh, gated communities for a while. They were in prison. The Alt Rebbe was in prison. His son was put in house arrest. The previous Rebbe was arrested. The Rebbe Rishab had to run away from, uh, from the Stalin regime. They went through a lot of suffering. So any mimer of the Rebbe that's going to explain Yutas Kislev would be the perfect place to look for meaning to life and especially in the suffering of life. Okay? But it is a very mystical uh, mimer. So just stay with me and uh, we'll get through this. And most important, we need to have a practical understanding of how to live life and how to deal with the suffering in life. Okay? That's my goal today. What we're going to talk about is the chariot. You're familiar with the chariot? That is the handout. And I don't know if they... Um, if they posted it yet, but she was supposed to post it. Um, if you're out there and you didn't get it posted yet, I will have it in the uh, recording when I, when I upload it and the email, send me your email, you'll have a link for, for the handouts. Uh, that's what I do now every week. So the handout basically is a copy-paste of the first chapter in the book of Ezekiel. Okay? So just that so you know exactly when it happened, it was on, I'll tell you exactly, I did have that here. Yes, on the fifth day of Tammuz of the year 3332 from creation, which is 429 BCE, Ezekiel had the prophecy of the chariot. Now, the chariot is called Markava. If you look at Maimonides in the opening of his Book of Laws, he has over there called Hilchas Yesoide HaTorah, the laws of the foundations of the Torah. So I want to read to you what he writes at the end of his second chapter. The explanation of all the fundamental principles of these two chapters is referred to as my Saint Markova. Literally, it means the work of God's chariot. The sages of the early generations commanded that these matters should not be explained except to a single individual at a time. He should be a wise man who can reach understanding with his powers of knowledge. 
These concepts are extremely deep and not every person has the knowledge necessary to appreciate them. So as in many prophecies and in many mystical teachings, if you read it without knowing what you're talking about, it's like, oh yeah, 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 okay, so there was these angels and they had four faces and da da da. Everything here is the secret of creation. Maisa Markova is the secret of creation. It's the secret of the setup of the ten emanations, the seven emotions, and so forth and so on. Now, what I want to just share with you is that I gave you the handout. If you want to email me questions to the best of my capacity, I will, the best of my knowledge, I will answer them. I'm not getting into the entire setup. I'm just going to point out just specific important parts for this class. Number one, we talk about the four faces. If you read in Ezekiel's prophecy, you'll see right there, it talks about right away about the four faces. There's the face of man, the face of the lion, the face of the ox, and the face of the eagle. The face of the lion, he says, is to the right side. That's the side of kindness. The face of the ox is to the left side. You have these four faces. We're going to talk about them. Just that you know that in heaven, they don't have the Bronx Zoo. There is no lions walking around, and there is none. This all is metaphors for angels. They're actually the ministering angels. The lion represents Michael, the angel Malach Michael, which is the angel of kindness. The ox represents Gabriel, the, uh, the, uh, the angel of strictness and justice and strength. Givura, that's where the word Gabriel comes from. And this is what it's really talking about. Number one, okay? So just that you know, that's what we're talking about. Then our sages have a different teaching. Besides the chariot that we speak about in the book of Ezekiel, which was a clear vision that he describes, there is another chariot, our sages say, in Bereshis Rabbah, Ha'avot Hen Hen Hamarkava. Our patriarchs, they are the chariot. Now you have three patriarchs and you have four faces, four legs. So they add on Rachel, matriarch Rachel is the fourth. What we're going to refer to here, we're going to talk about the patriarchs, but also know it also includes the matriarchs. Now, these four, these three matriarchs, patriarchs and the one matriarch, they represent also what was the life of Avram. He was the total embodiment of the attribute of chesed, kindness. What was Yitzchak? Isaac. Isaac was strictness. What was Jacob? Jacob was compassion. What was Rachel? Rachel was malchut. Rachel was kingship. So again, you have the same concept. The question, however, is two things. Number one, why does God have a chariot? Number two, what is not enough with the chariot of angels that God has to have now the chariot of the patriarchs? That's what we're going to find out here in this class. Okay? And now, let the lecture begin. So, we always begin with the myster, a list of mystical concepts that we're going to discuss. Number one, the two primary aspects of a chariot. Number two, the ultimate meaning of existence. That's what we're going to talk about, Victor Frankl. What's the ultimate meaning of existence? Number three, tikkun versus tohu. There's worlds, the spiritual worlds. In the evolution from the infinite to the finite, it wasn't just... You read Genesis, it's just God and God said, let there be and let there be. 
in the books of Kabbalah, it talks about the evolution from one spiritual world to a lower spiritual world to a lower spiritual world until it reaches the physical world. Now, in those spiritual worlds, there's an interesting story. There's the world called Tohu, and it's all hidden in Genesis. If you listen to the verse, what does it say? Before God created the world as we know it, there was Tohu Uvohu. Tohu means chaos. But really, in Kabbalah, it tells us there was a world called Tohu. That world shattered its pieces. The sparks fell into this world, which is Tikkun. So we're going to talk about Tohu and Tikkun. Okay? The next thing we're going to talk about, which is the last topic, is the two levels of Bitul. Bitul means nullification. Bitul means humility. Okay? Okay, let's begin. What are the two primary aspects of a chariot? So we're going to talk about it first physically, because whenever the Torah uses language that we can relate to, and God took the Jews out of Egypt with an outstretched arm. God has no arm. And the feet of God stood on Mount Olives. God has no feet. But Kabbalah, and even Maimonides, who actually, even though he himself was an amazing Kabbalist, he stayed away from teaching Kabbalah, he talks about in the guide to perplexed. Why are we using human words for, for God? Okay? So when we talk about the chariot, we're going to look into what the physical chariot does, and then we'll understand what we're supposed to understand what a spiritual chariot means. Okay? So what do we have with the chariot? Number one, the chariot, wagon and its horses are completely subservient to the rider. As they say in French, achemve. You know what achemve means? <laughs> it's Yiddish. It means woe to the person who has a chariot who's, who's taking its own directions. The horses decide where to go. So number one, the chariot, the entire thing, the wagon, the horses has to be subservient to the rider. It needs to take the rider where the rider is telling it to go. Okay, that's number one. Number two, by having that, the chariot takes the rider to greater heights. Physically speaking, you can get to places that you can't get to if you didn't have a, a, a chariot, a wagon, a horse. Okay? Now, now that we know those two things, we understand a little bit of what's going on. We have the four faces of the chariot. Okay? And that's the chariot. But then there's something else. If you look in the handout that I gave to you, it says like this, and I'm, I'm actually quoting the verse. And above the firmament, there was over their heads, their heads means those four faces, was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was, important words now, the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. So you had the four faces. One of them is the face of man. And then you have the face of the lion, the face of the ox, the face of the eagle, right? Then on top of the chariot, you have the Kisya Kavod, the throne of glory. And on top of that, there was the likeness, it doesn't say upon, there was the image of a man. The likeness of the appearance of a man was not a man. Okay? Now, we understand that if the faces, the four faces are absolutely subservient, taking orders from and like the appearance, the likeness of appearance of a man, then the chariot is going the way it's supposed to go, and then the four faces are elevating 
the likeness of the appearance of a man to heights which are unprecedented to it. Now this leaves us with a huge little problem. Who does this uh, likeness of appearance of a man that's sitting on the throne of glory, who is that supposed to represent? God. Hashem. What exactly are these four angels bringing Hashem to unprecedented heights? <laughs> What's going on here? The whole chariot doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, what is unprecedented to Hashem? And thanks to these four ministering angels, we now have Hashem reaching unprecedented heights and experiences and places. What's going on here? Number one, whether Hashem needed them or not is, is the smaller... No, that's a smaller question. The question is, what do you mean there's heights? There's Hashem, there's heights, and Hashem's reaching the heights? <laughs> that's heresy. That's absolute apocursis. There's something besides God? There's a Mount Everest that God's climbing? <laughs> What's going on here? Thus, we need to understand a very important foundation in all of Kabbalah. In Kabbalah, God, simply speaking, is dimensions upon dimensions, levels upon levels, revelations upon revelations. Very seldom, if ever, will you find Kabbalah Hasidis speaking about the essence of God. Do you know why? Because words, by definition, are finite are descriptive and therefore when you talk about the essence of God you already defy any place for words not in my notes but I think I told you once a story I'll share it with you again there was once a chassid we're talking about not that long ago he, was, he lived in Israel we're talking about what? we're talking about let's say um, 70 years ago 80 years ago not even very fair, I believe so. That's it. So there were two chassidim, two masterminds. One was a mastermind, Moshe Gerari, and the other one was another mastermind, but also had a twist of humor with everything he did. And the humorous one walked over to the serious one and said, that Moshe, you know that in Chabad we don't daven before we learn chassidis, prepare ourselves to stand before God. I actually have no time can you tell me something about the essence? And with that, I'll daven. Knowing that this guy is a, a prankster, he tells him, leave me alone. You don't have time to learn? Learn, not my issue. You sit down and learn. He's nudging him, really? I'm a friend, I'm asking you, give me something to daven with. I don't want to be naked before God. Give me something to daven with. He's not leaving him alone. He says, okay, you know what? I'm just gonna tell him one thing and get him off my back. So he tells him like this, the essence, the minute he says those words, the prankster gives him a patch. He says, what was that? He says, don't you understand? If it's essence, you can't talk. The minute you talk, it's not essence. So when we talk about chariot, faces, angels, emanations, world, divinity, light, vessels, we're not talking about the essence of God. The minute you use any one of those terms, the essence of God, it's not. So now you understand that the four faces is one level. And the, the, the likeness of the image, appearance of a man on the throne is another level. And this level, this dimension, is bringing this dimension to unprecedented heights. 
So it's not heresy. We're not talking about heresy here. It's all about the evolution from the infinite to the finite. And the minute you start talking, you're already not talking about the essence, you're talking about the infinite light. The infinite light is not the source. And even when you say source, you're not talking about the essence because the source is already a description. So even the source, even ma'or, is not the essence of God. When you say the word essence of God, you already lost it. <laughs> Just stop. Now that we understand that, let's understand what's going on here. Okay? So now the question is, how exactly is the dimension of faces, which I already shared with you is the, is the four different angels, which I also shared with you, they represent different emanations, the different ones of the seven emotions. So now you understand that what's going on here? What is the likeness of an appearance of a man and how does these angels elevate the higher? So obviously if the angels are the chariot and then on the chariot is the rider, so the angels are lower than the rider. How can the lower bring heights to the higher? We need to understand that, okay? To understand that, the answer is in one word. It's by the lower having bitul. By the lower having subserviency, if that's a word, and nullification to the rider, it brings heights, unprecedented heights to the rider. To understand this, we're going to need to go now to visit Viktor Frankl. Okay? So, what is the ultimate answer to man's search for meaning? What is the ultimate meaning of existence? To achieve your potential. Not yet. Not yet because your potential is still about you. If you're still stuck in you, then you haven't reached... Even your soul. It's your soul. It's you. You're made up of a body and a soul. So here I want to share with you to understand what the ultimate meaning of life is. It basically can be summed up in one Hasidic teaching. God is everything and everything is God. Okay? Now, we need to take you to the teaching that will make it more sense. There's a Hasidic teaching that says, God made something out of nothing for us to make nothing out of something. Let's say that again. God made something out of nothing in order for us to make nothing out of something. Now, to understand this, we'll go back to the teaching I just told you. God is everything and everything is God. So when we say here, God made something out of nothing, Who's the nothing? God. Who's the something? Us. Does that make sense? God made something out of nothing. That means before God made something, there existed only Him. And from Him, He made us. So God made something, us, out of nothing, Him. How do we call God? Nothing. The answer is that we're not calling Him nothing the way you and I would say, ah, He's such a nothing. No. We're calling him nothing the same way the Jews call the mana, mana. Do you know why the Jews call the mana, mana? Let me read you the verse. The verse is in Exodus. When the children of Israel saw it, the mana, they said to one another, it is mana, because they did not know what it was. So Rashi explains, 
because they did not know what it was, that they were, they were able to call it by its name. To call something by its name, not just to play hocus pocus makeup, you have to understand what it is and the name has to be descriptive. Right? <laughs> in, in pharmaceutical, you learn that. There's a name that's out there, but the real name is a name that basically tells you exactly what the molecules are. So too is a real name. So for the Jews to call the manna a real name, they couldn't. They didn't know what it is. Now let's take it to what we're talking about. We have a definition of something. A definition of something means it has certain properties. It has a beginning, it has an end, it has a space, it has a time. It has certain properties that make it something. When you define these properties, it's not a something. If it's not a something, what is it? A nothing. Thus, when we call God Ayin, Yeshma Ayin, Ayin in Latin, Nihilo. Yeshma Ayin means ex Nihilo. When we call God Nihilo, nothingness, we're saying that He transcends beyond anything that we can call something. So we have ex Nihilo, ad Nihilo? Ad Nihilo, you have, let's keep it simple. <laughs> Ex nihilo is ad simply nihilo meaning something out of nothing. But the way you put it is ex nihilo ad nihilo. No, something out of nothing for us to make nothing out of something. So we're going to explain ad that nihilo. in a moment. Yeah. So what happens here is that you have this something which is us made out of the nothing which is Hashem. So what does something mean? The word for something is yesh. Yesh ma'ayin. Ex nihilo. Ex something means an identity. Simply speaking, ego. So Hashem creates us in a way that we are not privy to truly feel that we are but a piece of God. An expression of God. Thus, we are born into this world as the center of the universe. Right? How dare mommy not be up breastfeeding me the second I woke up, I have to really cry to get her attention? What is going on here? So we have that somethingness that just keeps on growing. And even when we become more spiritual, as we're going to see soon, that's still a something. When you use Torah as a self-help book, we're really missing the point. Yes, Torah is the perfect guide for life. But really, is that what it's all about? It's for me to be the best me? Is that really what it's all about? We're going to question that today. Because seemingly, it would be a very nice answer. Yes. God created me to be the best me I can. But if you think about it that way, then everything exists for you. God is here so you can have a God. The Torah is here so you can have a Torah. So even on that level, we're the something. The goal of life is not to make the prettiest something out of this something. It's rather to reveal that in essence, this something is but a piece of nothing. Nothing meaning God. Thus we now understand what the main purpose and meaning of life is. God puts us in this world, brings us about through ego, self-centeredness. What is the one strongest thing in every creature of existence, you know? 
There you go. What does survival say? I don't mean to kill you, but if I don't eat you, I won't survive. And even in Yosemite Park, what's going on underground and what's going on above ground? The sequoias and the other trees, there's a war going on under there. We're not looking to kill each other, but there ain't room in this town for both of us. So the entire existence from the first bet of Bereshis is survival, and survival is self-centeredness. Thus when we say that the ultimate purpose and meaning, man's search for meaning, is actually for man to experience that as a something he is to become a transparent nothing. And again, the word nothing here means total transparency to God. I'm going to put this on the table just to help it make sense because, oh my God, what are you talking about? There's supposed to be a nothingness and da da da. Someone told me a great line The ultimate goal of a parent is to make themselves unnecessary. So we can relate to it. Unfortunately, many of us don't succeed in that. The ultimate problem is when you read in the paper that a parent who unfortunately literally puts their child in danger to be able to rush and save them to the, uh, you know, to rush them to the hospital and be the savior and be needed. But uh, one, of the, one of the greatest pains of midlife crisis is what do you mean my kids don't need me? <laughs> And then it goes, not only to not need you, they don't want you. But we'll, we'll save that for a different class. <laughs> but for right now. <clears throat> the concept that we're talking about is, yes, if you want to know the answer to Viktor Frankl's search of meaning, and then we have to understand how does suffering become part of this? Judaism is not into that. We're not into, uh, you know, self-flatulating. We're not into that. But so what is it all about? So let's go further, okay? Well, Let's be practical. So the ultimate meaning of life is God made something out of nothing and we are to make from this something a nothing, which literally translates as bitul, humility. One of the clear signs of what is humility and what is ego is whether you have unity or separation. Everything divine, Everything that's humble, everything that's connected to the great nothingness is always a compilation of each other and always with unity. Everything that is not nothingness, not divine, is always defined by the exact opposite. Divisiveness, I'm me, you're you, stay on your side of the street, I'll stay on my side of the street, and that's it. Okay? Which leads us to something very powerful. When you look into the handout that I gave you, you're going to see over there a very powerful verse. And I'm going to read it to you. It's verse number 10. And the likeness of their faces, that means the four faces, and the likeness of their faces was the face of a man, the face of a lion was on their right to the four of them, and the face of an ox to the left to the four of them, and the face of an eagle was to the four of them. What does it mean to the four of them? La'arbatam. What it actually means is that each face was made up of all four faces. Now we understand if the way the chariot brings up the rider is through bitul, through humility, 
And the sign of humility is unity. The fact that each one of the faces was made up of all four faces is already telling me what's going on here? Humility. But let's take this a step further. I wanted just to really appreciate the humility. I told you that the lion on the right represents the archangel Michal. Then you have on the left the ox is Gavriel. Michal is kindness and on the left Gavriel is strictness and justice. That means that these are what? Pure opposites. How exactly is it possible for there to be, for there to be such unity? To understand this, we're now going to talk about the world of Tohu. The world of Tohu, you know what, let me introduce it this way. There is a teaching of our sages in the Talmud and Tainit, and you probably heard this saying, and it says like this, a man should always be as gentle as the reed and never unyielding as the cedar. So the reed is wobbly wibbly, but because of that, it survives the greatest winds. The cedar is strong, but there comes the wind which is stronger than the strength of the cedar and it topples. Thus we're taught, always be gentle as the reed and not as unyielding as the cedar. Now in Kabbalah, reed represents the world of Tikkun, the orderly world of Tikkun, and cedar represents the chaotic world of Tohu. To understand this, we need to understand what the difference in Tohu and Tikkun is and why Tohu shattered. Tohu, by definition, is a far more infinite and intense light than the world of Tikkun. Tikkun is weaker than Tohu. Tohu is the cedar, and Tikkun is the reed. However, precisely because the lights of Tohu were intensely infinite, thus the intense and intensely infinite kindness could not have no space within itself for the intensely infinite strength, strictness, justice. Because each light was intensely infinite, they could not tolerate their opposite. So therefore, in the world of Tohu, kindness had zero place for strictness. Strictness had zero place for kindness. And thus, it shattered. And therefore, we're told, rather be the weaker light of Tikkun, but be made up of compilation. You remember the days between Passover and Shavuos, you count to Omer 49? 49 is all the seven emotions, each compiled of the seven emotions. That's how it works. Kindness of kindness, strictness of kindness, right? Then you have uh, kindness of strictness, strictness of strictness, and so it goes on. That compilation is only possible because the light is weaker. But because it's weaker and it has compilation, it's sustainable. A person who can only live with one paradigm will eventually break down. Because life doesn't have just one style of experiences. Thus, you have to have a compilation within you. There's a time to be strict, a time to be kind, a time to be compassionate, and there's a time not to be compassionate. I always mention this, you know. One of the big problems of our world is we're so worried about anger management. I'm worried about compassion management. 
because that causes a lot of evil to happen. Not politically correct, but truth. With that being said, when you have this compilation, it's sustainable. Thus, the reed survives, the cedar does not survive. Now we understand that the world of Tohu is seven emotions, each one separate. I'm not talking about the intellects right now. We'll talk about it in a moment. While the world of Tikkun is seven emotions, weaker, but therefore tolerable of each other. Now the question is, even if you have weaker kindness and you have weaker strictness, they're two opposites. How exactly do you bring two opposites together? Whether they're intensely infinite or whether they're finitely weak. Opposites are opposites. If you have a weak north pole and south pole of a magnet, you can put them together. They're not together. You'll stand there, you'll... Uh. So these you can bring together, other ones you can't, but they're not really together. North is North Pole is North Pole, South Pole is South Pole, and they're not going to mix. So to understand this, we'll now understand what it means greater heights. In order for emotions to be able to be compiled of each other, they've got to stop arrogantly existing as emotions and open up to their parent intellect. Why? In Kabbalah, the definition of a wise person is one that can entertain two opposite thoughts. One who can only entertain one way of thinking is not wise. One who is wise is someone who can truly entertain two opposite ways of thinking, knowing that there's a truth to each. Right? I should give this speech in the Senate, no? <laughs> well, good luck. <laughs> now, what is the concept here? The concept is that when emotions don't tell you so much what they feel, but rather they're willing to hear from intellect that everyone is right in their aspect, and thus we all can live together, because we actually complement each other, we actually are incomplete without each other, that's when you can have that compilation. Thus, we now understand a little more what we're talking about. The four faces are compilated from each other, and they do this by how? By rising up, by opening up, not just to live within the realm of feelings, but to be able to have subserviency to the realm of intellect. This is right, and this is right. Thus, both feelings can be commendable. I'm going to just tell you my own little, I'm not going to say it's right or wrong, it's my own little thought, take it for what it's worth. But you know, in Israel, there was a lot of, there was and there is, a lot of right and left over there, the religious and the non-religious, it's a, it's a party. So I once shared with someone, do you realize why in Israel there's such a problem between the religious and the non-religious and you don't have that anywhere else? As much at least. Because what are the religious saying? You want to be not religious. You want to eat basar lavan. You want to have ham. Just not, not here. Not in Israel. This is God's land. Do it somewhere else. This is home. 
How many, how many people they, they, in the process of becoming kosher? We keep kosher at home. At home, keep it kosher. When you go to Paris, go have yourself a, you know, whatever you want to have over there. But not here. What does the non-religious say? This is my home. Don't tell me what I should or shouldn't do in my home. This land is my home. Israel is my home. I'm a Jew. It's my home. Don't tell me what to eat and what not to eat in my home. In other words, look what's going on here. The fight is all about that every Jew, right and left, is saying, this is my home. In America, you set your policies. Over here, this is home. See what's going on here? So someone who can't embrace this is going to have to pick a side. Someone who can embrace the beauty of what's really going on here, wow. Wow. That's what wisdom does for emotions. Thus, we now understand when we say that when the emotions are subservient to the rider, it elevates them to unprecedented heights. Why? If you're only able to understand that which runs well with your feelings, you don't really have a great capacity of intellect. You're very limited. Someone, I'll tell you a story, someone who was a writer in the Algemeen Journal, but a very leftist writer, and the editor, the owner of the Algemeen Journal was a Chabad Chassid, Jacobson. And one time he told this guy, come with me, come with me to see the Rebbe. The Rebbe gives out wine at the end of Rosh Hashanah. He's like, you kidding me? Me? You know the Rebbe is going to kick me out of his shul. He says, you don't know our Rebbe. Come. Okay. He comes, and Jacobson tells the Rebbe, when he gets there, he says, Rebbe, this is so-and-so. He says, oh, you write in Algemeen Journal. And he tells the Rebbe, you read my articles? I write against everything you believe in. And the Rebbe answered, if I would only write, if I would only read what I agree with, I'd be reading very little. <laughs> so what happens is when the emotions are subservient to the intellect, it rises up the intellect. If I can't have with you a conversation with something that I have very harsh feelings against, I'm very limited. What am I going to learn? I'm only going to listen to my station. I'm only going to read my papers. I'm only so when there's the unity of the emotions by being subservient to the writer, the writer gets elevated and with that the emotions get elevated. Now we understand very practically what this whole mystical secret of the chariot is. I shouldn't say whole, oh, a little speck. But now we have a problem. So if we now understand that the secret of the chariot is to get past the I love, I hate, don't talk to me about this. If that already does it by bringing it up to intellect, subserviency, and that allows the intellect to run far wilder than what your emotions can handle at the moment, why do we need the next chariot? What did the chariot of the forefathers do? What did the chariot of the patriarchs do? We still need to understand that. Okay? To understand this, I'm going to take you through the last Kabbalistic concept we're going to talk about. There are two levels of bittel. When we talk about selflessness, humility, we talk about nullification, right? There are two levels. I'm going to give you the Kabbalistic words for it, and then I'm going to explain it to the best of my capacity. 
One is called Bitul B'Metziut and one is called Bitul HaMehut. What is the difference between Metziut and Mehut? So if you look it up, the word Metziut means reality, the existence of. The word Mehut actually comes from two words, Mahu. What is the essence? Let me give you a clear example. Very often in Kabbalah it says, we have Yediot HaMetziut of God. We have the knowledge of the existence of God. We don't have the knowledge of the Mahut of God. I know that there's a God that exists. A creation begets a creator. But can I tell you what God is? No. So you have Metziut and you have Mahut. I clearly can lecture and you can lecture. You all have enough proof in your own life in the Torah that there is a God. So the Yediyat HaMetziut. I know that there is a God and one thing I know about God is that He's a creator because He created you and me. But if you talk about Yediyat HaMehut, what is the essence of God? I have no idea. Now let's talk about it in our language. Because over here we're not talking about, when you talk about Bitul, Yediyah, knowledge, we're talking about God. Bitul, nullification, humility, we're talking about ourselves. So what does Mitziyut and Mehut mean in our conversation? I'm going to borrow a saying from Aristotle. Aristotle once said, does a mathematician become a triangle? So now let's understand this. The mathematician, if he's a real mathematician with passion, he is extremely passionate and his entire life is all about numbers, equations, and angles. Does he become a number? Does he become an equation? Does he become an angle? So thus, we can say that mitziut is the existence of what I live with. Mehut is our beingness. There is a great, great, great book written by John Bradshaw, and it talks about the shame that binds us. He's the one that coined, we are human beings, not human doings. The mitziut is our doing. I'm completely passionate and only want to talk about mathematical equations. That's the love of my life. That's my human doing. It's not my human being. So metziot is the doingness and mehot is the beingness. Now let's talk about this. The average person can only experience at best bitul hametziot, humility of the metziot of the doingness. What does that mean? That is entire passion. A person can reach a level where my entire passion is about God, about Torah, about Jews, about Judaism, about Israel, about the human race, about God's universe. I could become that. In other words, I've decided that I'm not going to dedicate my life to my own power, fame, and wealth and glory, but rather I want to be of service to God. That's my doingness. We can all work on that. And we all reach that level by level. Simply, every time you want to do something and you don't do it because of God, you just experience bitul hametziyut. I can go beyond the I want, I don't want, I like, I don't like. That's bitul hametziyut. Now let's talk about the bitul b'mahut. 
Bitlamahut is becoming the triangle. It's not just being passionate about God, it's absolute transparency to God. I didn't put this in my notes, but I want to share it with you. It's a talk from the Rebbe. Unbelievable point, a short point. Abraham was the one that said, I am but dust and ashes. God tells Abraham, go for your sake. Rashi says, what does it mean, go for your sake? It should just say, go. So Rashi says, for your sake. Why for your sake? Because when you're here, you won't have children, you won't have money, and you won't have fame. When you go, you'll have all three. The Rebbe asks a simple question. No. Mainly you want to say, I'm going to bribe Avram Avinu to listen to me with a child. Okay. He's been praying for a child. You want to tell me you're going to bribe him with money. No. Okay. We know that Avram had a pundaki. He had a tent with four doors and he fed everyone. Kindness takes money. What exactly are you going to bribe Avram with fame? Really? Is that how we're going to bribe Avram? The man who said, I am but dust and ashes? That's the Rebbe's question. You know what the Rebbe's answer is? The Rebbe's answer is that Avram Avinu knew that when anyone spoke about him, what were they talking about? Oh, you're talking about the, God with, the guy with one God. The guy who has, who's spreading monotheism. The man who talks all day long about thank God, thank God, thank God, thank God. The one that fought against the idols. The one that broke the idols. The one that was thrown into a burning furnace because of he wouldn't bow to an idol. That means Avram's fame is whose fame? God's fame. You're talking about Avraham, you're only talking about Hashem. We're not talking about his color eyes. We're talking about what he teaches. And all he taught was Hashem. Thus you see that you could become the triangle. The righteous and the holy became the triangle. Their fame was God's fame. Take, tell you how far this goes. There was the Hale Geruzhina lived a, a life of great wealth. He had six white horses pulling his chariot. And he had golden shoes that he wore once a month when he did the Kiddush Levana. And the people were like, what? This is a holy tzaddik? This is a tzaddik? Golden shoes? One time, he was in, in Russia, not here. One time in the winter when he walked away from doing Kiddush Levana, they saw blood on the ice they realized that his golden shoe was only the top. The bottom was barefoot and he was freezing. And one time they asked the Chassid, what's the meaning behind all this wealth? And he quoted the Talmud. The Talmud says that God created gold only because you're going to need it to build a holy temple. Once he created gold, he gave it to the people too. The Ruzhina didn't take the second half. His golden shoes wasn't about that he should be comfortable. His golden shoes was about once, a, once a, a month. It says you should do the mitzvah with Shabbos clothes. He took it to the next extreme. But he made sure not to enjoy it. That's called absolute transparency. That's not bitul b'metzius. That's not just bitul of the doingness. That's the bitul of the beingness. That's the bitul of a whole new level. That even angels can't do. Because even angels are stuck only with the bittle of their doing this. How do we know this? I'm messing with the angels now. What, am I crazy? I'll tell you how we know it. How many angels did God send to Abraham? Three. Correct. 
Why do you send three? Rashi tells us why. Because there were three jobs that had to be done. One job was a job of healing, one job was a job of kindness, and one job was a job of strictness to turn over Sodom and Amora. Three different missions. Angels cannot become so transparent that they can do any mission. They're stuck with their own paradigm. Thus God had to send three separate angels because Michael could not turn over Sodom, Gabriel couldn't heal Avraham from his circumcision, and, and, and both of them, and, and I'm sorry, and Raphael couldn't go ahead and tell Avraham you're going to have a child. One's an act of healing, one's an act of kindness, one's an act of justice. Now let's talk about Avraham Avinu. What do we say Avraham Avinu was? We said Avraham Avinu was kindness. Have you ever found a more stricter act than taking your own son and tying him up on the altar? Michael couldn't turn over Sodom. Avram was able to bind his own son on the altar thinking that he was going to now bring him as a sacrifice? When Avram's whole life was about kindness and anti-human sacrifice, that's what everyone else did and he said, no, that's not what God wants. To be able to do that takes not just the nullification, the selflessness of doing this, you gotta be able to reach the selflessness of beingness. That's what this is about. That the chariot of Ezekiel with the angels couldn't do, but the chariot of the, our patriarchs and matriarchs were able to do that. Thus they didn't just elevate from the emotions to the intellect, rather they elevated from the emotions to the supernal crown, to the interior dimension of the supernal God, crown, where God is everything and everything is God. This total, I want to just bring up one more point. How do you make a fire? There's only one way to make a fire. You've got to have the disintegration of fuel. If there isn't fuel disintegrating, there isn't fire burning. Thus the Zohar says, it says it in a very interesting way. It quotes the saying, the man who has eyes in his head. And then he questions, what do you mean? Everyone has eyes in their head. He says, no, eyes in the head means the eye that is conscious of the divine flame that's on top of everyone's head. What does it mean that you're conscious of the flame on top of your head? It means that you're conscious to make sure you're feeding it fuel so that it doesn't leave you. What is the fuel that you have to feed, feed this fire? The disintegration of fuel. The something transformed into nothing is the disintegration of the fuel that lets that light of God shine and illuminate upon your head. Thus we understand now the secret of the chariot. Thus we understand the disintegration of the fuel, making this something to become transparent to nothing. Thus we understand the suffering of the righteous. Thus we understand what the sages tell us. An olive needs to be crushed to bring out the oil. Now we understand the difference between the nullification of mitziut or the nullification of mahut. What is the only fuel, the one fuel, that's completely absorbed and turned into fire and leaves no residue of ashes? Oil. 
Thus, when the tzaddik goes through suffering, what is he going through? He's going through a mass global transformation of somethingness into nothingness on the highest level of the chariot of the patriarchs where he's producing oil, not no logs that leave smoke and ashes. Now we got to bring it home. Close it up. So far, so good? Yeah? Okay, in closing. Whoa, 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 I'm going to read this, not to be distracted. You know I talk about recovery a lot, right? So, tighten your seatbelts. In closing, let us return to our opening quest of man's search for meaning. In the 12-step recovery rooms, one can hear a person identify himself as a grateful recovering addict. Now, for people not familiar with the rooms, one thinks, of course you're a grateful recovering addict, because before you were a recovering addict, you were an active addict, lonely, homeless, bum, menace to society. Of course you're grateful that you're recovering. No. However, if you keep coming back, you learn that what the person means is that he or she is grateful that he or she was an addict in order that they can now be a recovered addict. In other words, they are grateful that they are not a non-addict person. Why in the world would someone be grateful that they are an addict? For the rest of their lives, they can only be recovered for one day at a time, and that takes forever working the program with rigorous honesty. Wouldn't it be far better for them if they were never an addict at all? The answer, their answer is no. And they are not kidding about that. Why? Because recovery from addiction has but one solution and it is a spiritual solution. Spiritual, not religious. Spiritual is honest, humble, open-minded, willing, and selfless. Once a person has not only sobriety, which could be a dry drunk, but recovery, this individual is forever grateful for everything that God put him or her through to get there. Now, what's about the non-addict? If you are not an addict, then this lecture is speaking to you as well, but not through a rock bottom of powerlessness, powerlessness and unmanageability of an addiction. Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Lubavitch, the third Rebbe of the Chabad dynasty, would have a cup of water before he prayed. One day, his gabai, by mistake, filled the cup with vodka instead of water. Hours later, when he realized what he had done, he asked forgiveness from the Rebbe. The Rebbe replied, ah, I noticed that today's prayer was something else. <laughs> nu, he didn't finish, this is what he finished with. Nu, in Chabad we exchanged a cup of vodka for the study of Hasidus. In other words, there's more than one way to skin the cat. It doesn't have to be through the rock bottom of a bottle of vodka or any other addiction. It can also be through a true, honest, humble, selfless, and open-minded study of Hasidus. The main thing is to truly find a higher power and ride on his wings. Thank you.